Amen. Well, we've reached the point in our study of 1 Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul records what is often referred to as the key text in the Bible on the subject of the rapture of the church. And last week we did our best to define the rapture, and I'll just remind you again what we came up with. We said it is an instantaneous future event prophesied in the Bible in which Jesus removes his church from the earth to meet him and all saints who have died earthly deaths in the clouds, in the air. It's a heavenly dimension where they receive resurrected bodies before being led to heaven where they remain until the second coming. And that description refers to a lot of concepts we covered in our last study. So if you missed that, I recommend you watch or listen to it online. We can't go back and cover all that same stuff again But you'll pick up on a bunch of it as we make our way through today's study. The Thessalonian church was under intense persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. People were being killed. They were being martyred for their faith in Jesus. I don't think we could possibly understand what it would be like to come to church and say, you know, oh, where's Steve this week? And the answer is, Steve's dead. He's been killed for for being a Christian. They were deeply concerned as well with questions like, well, well, if a believer dies before the rapture happens, will they, will they miss out on getting this new resurrected body? Will they miss out on eternal life? Will they miss out on heaven? So when Paul wrote his first letter to them, he addressed these concerns in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, which we started looking at last week. We'll just read that again. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have already died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, those who have already died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. However much you love talking about this stuff, and I do, I hope that for you the best part of this whole verse is that sentence, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And last week, we got into all kinds of things like order and time and how this all works. Today, we're going to take a look at a a few other key passages in the Bible that speak about the rapture. We're going to talk about the differences between the rapture and the second coming. And along the way, we're going to address a few of the more popular objections to this idea of the rapture. And as wonderful as Paul's passage on the rapture is in 1 Thessalonians that we just read, My personal favorite is found at the beginning of chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. It's going to be on your outlines, and it records our Lord, Jesus himself, giving us some promises that can can only be described as wonderful. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. So get this, like Paul's words to the Thessalonians, Jesus' words are supposed to bring us comfort. That's the effect they're supposed to have. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, would you underline my Father's house, are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. So Jesus says, guys, space is not an issue in my Father's house in heaven. There's room for all of you. 
There's not only a certain number of rooms or slots, like, say, 144,000. I'm just pulling that number out of thin air. But his point is that there's not a specific number. There's plenty of room for everybody who wants to come in. Then Jesus gives a disclaimer we just read. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. So Jesus understands that, that what he's telling his disciples is so unbelievable. It, it's so incredible that he takes a moment to just say, guys, just so you know, like I'm not joshing. Like, like this is for real. What I'm telling you is the truth. And he does that because what he says next is even more incredible. He says, I go. In other words, I'm going to be leaving soon. Why is he going to be leaving? He says, to prepare a place for you. To prepare a place for you. Would you underline prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, then underline the rest of this, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And those verses, those promises are so precious to me personally. So let's unpack them. Jesus tells his disciples that part of the reason he's going to leave them, part of the reason he's going to return to heaven is to prepare a place for them. At the end of his earthly ministry, does Jesus leave them? Does he go, as he says, off into the wilderness and start building a city in the desert for believers to come to one day? Of course not. He goes back to heaven. So using basic logic here, just basic logic, follow the flow with me. Jesus says he's going to leave the disciples to go and prepare a place for them. He ascends back up to heaven where the Bible tells us he's going to remain until he comes to receive his saints to receive them again so therefore we can safely assume that this place jesus is preparing for us is located where in heaven in heaven it's not rocket science so write this down jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven in heaven well in case we still didn't get it jesus lets us know that we can't get to this place on our own Apparently, he's going to have to come and get us, which is why he says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, we can't get to this place that he's prepared for us unless he comes and gets us. If we can't get there on our own, if Jesus has to come and get us in order for us to get there, what is the one place Jesus cannot be talking about? Here. The earth, right? How do we know? Because we're already here. We can get here. But apparently this place that he's preparing for us is located somewhere we can't get to on our own. He's going to have to come and get us. So write this down. This is deep stuff. To get there, to get to heaven, we will have to leave here, which is earth. To get there, we'll have to leave here. You're like, this is why I come to this church. Inspired teaching like this. Well, I don't know, Jeff. Could you maybe point out one more way in which the text redundantly makes this point? Well, sure thing. Jesus tells his disciples the place he's preparing is located where? In my Father's house. There's no view of the end times that at any point includes God the Father dwelling on the earth. No matter what view you have, nobody has that view that God the Father dwells on the earth at any point. Everyone agrees that God the Father dwells in heaven at all times. So when Jesus says, I'm preparing this place for you in my Father's house, he's saying, let there be no doubt, the place I'm preparing for you is in heaven. You can't get there on your own, so I'm going to come and get you 
to take you there. He's absolutely clear about that. And he accomplishes that in the event known as the rapture. That's what the rapture is. It's Jesus coming for his church to remove them from the earth and take them to be with him in heaven. I don't think there's anything in there about the way we've interpreted those words of Jesus that is a stretch. We're taking it in the most plain way we possibly can. Well, many people are familiar with the second coming of Christ, but the Bible actually prophesies two future comings of Jesus. The first is the rapture, and the second is the second coming. And they're very clearly distinct and different from each other. They, they have differences that make it impossible for them to be the same event. If you only remember a few events, let it be these. I put this on your outline. You can write it down. There's about three points in each of these sentences. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. He comes for his church. He meets them in the clouds, as Paul says, or in the air, and he takes them to heaven to be with them during the 70th week of Daniel, those seven years that follow the rapture and the great tribulation. So the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. He meets them in the clouds in the air, takes them off to heaven so that they're with him during the great tribulation, during the 70th week of Daniel. At the second coming, write this down, Jesus comes with his church and he comes to the earth to reign with them, to reign with the church, to reign with his saints for the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. So I want to make sure you get just how different these two events are. In the rapture, Jesus is coming for his church, as he says, to receive them to his, himself. In the second coming, Jesus comes with his saints, the Bible says, meaning that they're already with him. In the rapture, Jesus meets his church in this heavenly dimension called the clouds or the air, and they go off to heaven. In the second coming, Jesus and his church come back to the earth, where they reign on the earth together. The rapture sees the church being with Jesus in heaven for the duration of those seven years of the 70th week of Daniel and the great tribulation. The second coming sees the church with Jesus on the earth for the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. Each event is completely distinct from the other. When Jesus describes the rapture in John 14 that we just looked at, when you look at the details of what he's saying, it's obvious that he's not talking about the second coming. The same is true of what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Obviously not talking about the second coming. In fact, when you examine all the prophetic scriptures in the Bible that talk about Jesus' future comings, you will find them all falling into one of these two buckets, either the rapture or the second coming. And that's a study I encourage you to do on your own, but you'll find that their differences make it impossible for them to be the same thing. They're so distinct it is logically impossible for them to be the same event. Their characteristics are mutually exclusive. Some other differences I'll just go through real quick for you Bible nerds. The rapture could happen at any moment, and only God the Father knows when that moment will be. The second coming has a fixed appointment. The Bible tells us it's exactly 1,260 days from the moment Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple and sets up a throne for himself in that event described in Daniel and Revelation as the abomination of desolation. So when that happens, everyone will know exactly how long it's going to be till the second coming. No man knows the day or the hour of the rapture. At the rapture, the church gets new eternal bodies. There's a resurrection. At the second coming, there's no resurrection. 
The rapture is hidden as a mystery in the Old Testament, but it's revealed and predicted in the New Testament. The rapture is only witnessed by the church. To everyone else, we just disappear. The second coming is witnessed by the whole world. At the second coming, every eye sees Jesus. At the rapture, only the church sees Jesus. The rapture takes place before God's wrath is poured out on the earth. The second coming concludes God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And I save possibly the most important distinction of all for last. This will really help you understand the difference. Jesus is going to have two future comings because he has two covenant peoples. The rapture is all about God's promises to his church. You can write that down. The rapture is all about God's promises to his church. The second coming is all about God's promises to Israel, the Jewish people. The rapture is all about us. Second coming, that's all about Israel. If you understand this, there's so much of this that will begin to line up and make sense. The rapture is about removing the church from the earth before God pours out his judgment on it. The second coming is about God revealing himself, revealing Jesus to the Jews, their hearts turning to him, them finally accepting him as their Messiah, and the whole nation of Israel being saved. The rapture is about the church. The second coming is about Israel. And if you want to wrap your mind around the end times events prophesied in the Bible, you really do need to study the book of Revelation. Shameless plug. And last week, we spoke about the importance of interpreting the Bible literally unless there's a compelling reason not to. We said none of us talk to someone and begin by assuming that they're speaking figuratively or allegorically. We all begin with the assumption that we're speaking literally unless there's a compelling reason not to do so. But for most of the last 2,000 years, people have not interpreted the book of Revelation literally. And that's largely because they found the things in it too fantastic or outright impossible to take literally. However, due to changes in things like the Earth's population and technology as well as massive political developments, we now can take everything in the book of Revelation literally, and so we should. But additionally, there's a prophetic aspect to the book of Revelation. You say, I know, Jeff, that's what the whole book is about. Hang with me. There's a prophetic aspect that's already been fulfilled. And one of the things that prophecy does when it's fulfilled is it authenticates everything else around it that is prophetic. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you have a book that has prophecies in it that have already come true, then you have every reason to believe that the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled will also be fulfilled. And if those prophecies that have been fulfilled were fulfilled literally, then guess what? The ones that haven't been fulfilled will also be fulfilled literally. Absolutely. This part of the book of Revelation, these prophecies that have already been fulfilled, have taken almost 2,000 years to unfold. Let me walk you through it. Chapter 1 of Revelation is all about Jesus being revealed. It's a vision and picture of Jesus and John's greetings. And then in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we get to read seven letters that are written to seven churches by Jesus. Our Lord himself dictates these letters to John the Apostle. They were written to seven churches that actually existed at the time John was writing. But Jesus also told all believers across all of time and all churches to take heed, to pay attention to what was written in these letters because there's stuff we can learn in every one of these letters. So again, these letters were written to seven literal and specific churches 
but they have also application for every believer and every church. But then they also have this sort of hidden prophetic layer to them. And it took the better part of 2,000 years for Bible scholars to begin picking up on the prophetic pattern that was emerging. Here's how it works. The seven letters also lay out all of church history from the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2 in 33 AD up to the present day. The time period between the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 and the moment of the rapture, that whole time period is known as the church age. And these seven letters prophesy, predicted in advance, 2,000 years of church history in detail across these seven letters. They predict each era of the church and the most important developments and changes that would happen across history. And the amazing thing is if you took any one of these seven letters and switched it with another one and changed the order, this wouldn't work. It wouldn't make any sense because it wouldn't line up with the way things unfolded across history. So if you're not convinced, just go and listen to our studies on those seven letters and those seven churches. I guarantee by the end you'll either be convinced or you'll believe that you've stumbled upon a coincidence so ludicrous it's statistically impossible. But what chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation cement for us through these prophecies is that the book of Revelation flows chronologically. It's in order. It's intended to be read and viewed as a chronological revelation. And what's amazing is that after you reach the end of the church age, which is chapters 2 and 3, you get to chapter 4. You say, Jeff, again, incredible insight. That's right, chapter 4. And how does chapter 4 begin? Well, John the Apostle writes, it's on your outlines. Chapter 4, he says, after these things... After what things? The events of chapters 2 and 3. After the church age is over, he says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Would you underline heaven? And the first voice which I heard, the first voice he hears is the voice of Jesus in the book of Revelation. The first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. Would you underline come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this, underline after this. So John doesn't look up, see a window in heaven, Jesus leaning out and yelling, hang on a minute, I'm just, I'll come down to you. That's not what he sees. He sees a door open in heaven and he is called up there. He's called to leave the earth and ascend to heaven after the church age is over. He hears a voice like a trumpet. And what did Paul write in 1 Thessalonians 4? He said, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. It's the same moment, it's the same event, it's the rapture. And so to reinforce our understanding that the book of Revelation flows chronologically, John is told, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So after the church age is over, after John, the believer, is taken up to heaven. The Bible's going out of its way to make sure that we, the reader, understand that the things which are described next in the book of Revelation take place after the believer has been called up to heaven. And just in case we weren't clear on the fact that John is actually called up to heaven in Revelation 4.1, just in case we thought it might be somewhere else, check out the very next verse, also on your outlines. In Revelation 4.2, John writes, immediately, would you underline immediately, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in, and then underline 
heaven, a throne set in heaven, and one with an uppercase O, that's the Lord, sat on the throne. So there can be no confusion. John is taken up to heaven where believers are going to be taken in the rapture. And how quickly does John say this happens? Immediately. In 1 Corinthians 15, how quickly did Paul say the rapture would happen? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That phrase, in the twinkling of an eye, is not a wink. It's not a blink. It's the speed at which light transverses the iris. It's actually the speed of light. It's the highest possible speed we can conceive of. Boom, like that. And when does he say it happens in 1 Corinthians 15? At the last trumpet. To further reinforce the fact that Revelation 4.1 marks the end of the church age, we find the word church showing up around 18 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. After that, after John the believer is raptured in Revelation 4, 1 and 2, the word church doesn't show up again in the book of Revelation till it appears in the greetings at the end of the book. It completely disappears from the narrative. Why? Because the church age is over at the end of chapter 3. The rapture takes place at the beginning of chapter 4. Then guess what we find in chapter 4 and chapter 5? A description of the church in heaven. Just to make sure we understand where the church is before the events of chapter 6 begin. And why is that so important? What begins in chapter 6? Well, in chapter 6 of Revelation, the wrath of God begins to be poured out on the world that has rejected Jesus rejected his sacrifice on the cross. God begins to judge the earth, and this continues from chapter six all the way to chapter 19. After the end of all of that tribulation and wrath, what do we find in Revelation? The second coming, the church returning to the earth with Jesus, where he establishes his millennial kingdom. After that, there's a final rebellion that's crushed, a final judgment, the end of the universe as we know it, and a new heaven and a new earth. So the book of Revelation flows chronologically. This is proven by the prophetic aspect of chapters 2 and 3, and it clearly lays out the rapture happening at the end of the church age with the church in heaven before God's wrath is poured out on the earth. It also lays out the rapture as a totally separate event to the second coming, separated by around 15 chapters, just so we can't be confused. They're two separate things. So would you write this down? The book of Revelation flows chronologically, Prophesying the church age in chapters 2 and 3, the rapture in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the church in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and the 70th week of Daniel or the great tribulation in chapters 6 through 19. Now one of the most popular objections to the rapture goes like this. You probably heard somebody say something like this. Jeff, listen, I don't know if this is news to you, but Christians have been persecuted. They've been martyred all over the world. Since the day the church was born in Acts chapter 2 and 33 AD, why should we think that we're going to somehow be exempt from the suffering that our brothers and sisters have suffered through for most of the past 2,000 years? I mean, that's a good question. Because uh, after all, Jesus himself said, in the world you will have tribulation. He did. Jesus promised that. We would have troubles. He promised we would have trials. He promised there'd be persecution. So why would we expect things to be different at the end times? Just because we think we're part of a last generation. 
Well, what is the source of the tribulations that believers have experienced for the past 2,000 years? What is the source of these tribulations that Jesus says we'll definitely face? Well, some of it is just the natural consequences of living in a fallen world. People get into accidents. People get sick. People die. Bad things happen because this is a fallen world. We have tribulation because the world is broken. Additionally, though, the Bible tells us that we have an adversary, the devil, who walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so because of that, we know that we experience the wrath of Satan, who stirs up the wrath of man against those who belong to the Lord. So when you see believers being thrown in jail, tortured, killed, That's the wrath of Satan against believers, stirring up the wrath of man. However, really understand this. There is absolutely no biblical basis, no verse you can point to, to make the claim that believers ever experience tribulation as a result of the wrath of God. There's not one. There's not one verse you can point to to build a case that believers ever experience the wrath of God. In fact, the Bible preaches the exact opposite of this idea. In the next chapter in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it's on your outlines. We'll read when we get there, Paul writing this. Would you underline it? God did not appoint us to wrath. God did not appoint us to wrath. To whose wrath? His wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is speaking about the wrath of God. How do we know that? Because Paul experienced the wrath of man. He experienced the wrath of Satan. He experienced being in a fallen world. He was beaten multiple times to within an inch of his life, and he would finally lose his earthly life in Rome. Capital punishment for being a Christian. Paul's been beaten, abused, all kinds of things when he writes this. And so if Paul says, God did not appoint us to wrath, then clearly he's not talking about any of the kind of wrath that he's experienced on the earth because he's experienced it. He's had appointments with that kind of wrath. He's talking about the wrath of God and he's saying God never gives his own an appointment with his wrath. God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now hang with me and follow the progression here. As we mentioned last week when we laid out our overview of end times, events, and timeline, The rapture takes place and shortly after that begins this seven-year period known in Scripture as the 70th week of Daniel. And during these seven years, there's catastrophic things taking place on the earth on on a scale we can't even fathom. And all these things are described in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. In Revelation 6, we read these verses. should be on your outline. It says, And the kings of the earth the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of who? Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of who? The Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? So according to the Bible, Those seven years that shortly follow after the rapture are the time period of whose wrath? The Lamb. Jesus, the Lord. So please understand this because this is incredibly important. 
what takes place in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, what happens during the 70th week of Daniel, what takes place in the great tribulation is not the results of living in a fallen world. It's not the wrath of Satan. It's not the wrath of man. It is, and I quote, the wrath of the Lamb. It's the wrath of the Lamb. Even the negative things that Satan does, that Antichrist does, happen because the Lord specifically allows them as a demonstration of his wrath. But everything happening in that time is the wrath of the Lamb. It's coming from Jesus towards those who have hated him and rejected him. It's the judgment of all the evils of this world that God has patiently held back for millennia. But as we've talked about before, love demands justice. And justice can't wait forever or it's not justice. And this is the moment, this is the season when time runs out and justice must be served. The earth has a future appointment with the wrath of God. Believers do not, ever. Before wrath comes down, the church goes up because believers will never experience the wrath of God. That is why Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Luke's gospel also records a few more details about the rapture that were taught by Jesus himself. In his message on the end times, known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, it's it's on your outlines, he said, I tell you, in that night, would you underline the word night, there will be two men, it actually just means people, in one bed, the one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding wheat, that means they'll be making bread together, The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. So according to Jesus, when this event happens, not everyone will be taken. Not everyone will be taken. The the two in one bed, the idea is you have a believer married to a non-believer. The believer's taken, the non-believer's left behind. Jesus described people in bed at night. He described women making bread, which they would always do in the early morning. And he described men working in a field, which would be during the day. The point here, though, just as a side note of interest, is that Jesus described a single instantaneous event taking place around the world that encompasses night, early morning, and day. And that's notable because Jesus taught this 2,000 years ago, and it's pretty funny because in my notes I have, as recently as 600 years ago, the predominant wisdom on the earth was that the world was flat. I feel like I need to modify that in light of the scientific regression we're making right now. I don't know if you know the ludicrous number of people who are starting to believe that the world is flat. But 600 years ago, it was the widely accepted scientific wisdom. So Jesus describes an event that takes place in one instant, but at all these different times of day as well. It's only possible if you understand that that while it's day in one part of the earth, it's night in another. While it's light in one part, it's dark in another. So my point is that Jesus was essentially teaching that the world was round around 1,500, 1,400 years before anybody else had really grasped the idea. And he taught this when nobody would have understood that, the gravity of that. He put it in here so that 1,500 years later, people would go, oh, Jesus knew the world was round. Cool. I think he's showing off a little bit, but I enjoy it too. One of the other persisting objections to the doctrine of the rapture goes like this. And you might have heard this one. One of the most popular ones ever. People will say, Jeff, the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. Not even in the Bible. Well, yes, it is. Let me explain. So up until the 300s, 
The Bible existed in parts in multiple languages, Greek and Aramaic, possibly some of it in Hebrew. And so the decision was widely made. It was a task given to a man named Jerome to translate the entire Bible into one complete document in a single language. So they said, let's get the whole Bible in one place, one language. And the language they chose was Latin because Latin was and is what's known as a dead language. That simply means that it's no longer evolving because nobody's using it as their primary spoken dialect. If you go to England 500 years ago, you won't be able to understand anybody. My mother and father-in-law have like a page from a, a British Bible from just a few hundred years ago literally can't understand it, and it's apparently English, but that's because English is a language that's still evolving because every language that's still being spoken is still evolving. Latin was dead by the 300s, and it stayed dead since then. They knew it was dead, so if you want to create any sort of reference or source document, Latin is actually an excellent, excellent choice because it's still going to mean the same thing a thousand years from now that it means today. So they translated the Bible into Latin in the 300s. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, you see the phrase caught up used to talk about the rapture. Paul says we'll be caught up. Paul originally wrote to the Thessalonians in Greek, and the word that he used there in the Greek for caught up is the word harpazo. When the Bible was translated into Latin in the 300s, that translation was known as the Vulgate. And in the Vulgate, the, the Latin word that they used for the Greek word harpazo was the word raptus, from where we get our word rapture. Both harpazo in the Greek and raptus in the Latin mean to be caught up or to be snatched up. So to be clear, the word rapture is absolutely in the Bible. It's just been translated from Latin into caught up in our English Bibles. And I say that to, to satisfy anyone who wants to be a nitpicker, but, but I also need to point out what a terrible argument this is against the rapture. Because you know what other word doesn't appear in the Bible? The word Bible. It's not in there anywhere. Neither is the word Trinity. Both of those words describe truths that are laid out in the Scriptures even though those actual words do not appear in the Scriptures. So I think that even if the word rapture didn't appear in any version of the Bible, in any language, it wouldn't change anything because rapture would still just be the term we use to describe this event that is described in Scripture. Let's hit on another objection people sometimes raise when we talk about the rapture. And, and this objection gets raised just because I know you know this, but a lot of people have a hard time with the idea of hundreds of millions of people suddenly vanishing from the earth or like floating up into the sky out of view. And as we said last week, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, then you'll have no problem believing the rapture. Because if you can believe that God created the universe out of nothing, just the way he wanted to, then you'll have no problem believing that he can end the world just the way he wants to. He's not limited in any way. It's hard to believe, or it's too fantastic to be true, are not good reasons for not accepting the doctrine of the rapture. Nevertheless, there are those who will say something like, hey, when the Bible talks about us being caught up or, or stuff like that, it's really talking about something else, like being overwhelmed with the presence of Jesus. It, it's just an expression. It's figurative. You know, I went to church and worship was good and I was caught up in the worship. To me, the, the problem with that line of thinking is, is twofold. So, so firstly, there's not a compelling reason to not take it literally. Your only reason is, I find it hard to believe that the rapture is literal. 
Th that's not a good reason. You don't have a reason in the text to not take it literally. But secondly, more importantly, there's already a biblical precedent for literal, physical raptures. The future rapture of the church is not the only rapture mentioned in the Bible. At least six others are recorded that have already taken place. Enoch was taken by God. He did not experience earthly death. It says in Genesis and Hebrews that he did not see death. Elijah was taken up, raptured to heaven in a whirlwind. Jesus was raptured. He ascended to heaven. And remarkably, Revelation 12.5 even uses the same word, harpazo, to describe Jesus returning back to heaven that Paul used to describe the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4. So in other words, you go into the original Greek, the word that is used to describe Jesus ascending to heaven is harpazo. The word that's used by Paul to describe the rapture of the church is harpazo. So the question is, when the Bible says Jesus ascended to heaven, did he or didn't he? Did he or didn't he? Was it a literal ascension? Or did he not really do it? Did he just sort of say, guys, look up there, and then sneak away? Or did he actually go? Of course he ascended. And so when Paul says, we're going to ascend, we're going to be raptured as well, it means the same thing. We've got no reason to interpret the words differently. Philip was raptured. He was actually caught up from, from one place to another. He teleported. That's in Acts chapter 8. Both Paul and John were temporarily raptured to heaven. And the seventh rapture mentioned in the Bible is the rapture of the church that we're studying today. Those examples should prove to you and I that when the Bible talks about being caught up, being snatched up, it's not being figurative. It's being literal. And we know that because it's already happened to other men in the Scriptures. There's already a precedent in the Bible for literal, physical raptures. Well, let's keep rolling with these objections to the rapture because they're so much fun and I think we can learn a lot through them. A more modern objection to the rapture that should have died out by now but might be the one that I actually hear the most goes like this. Jeff, I don't know if you know this, but a Plymouth Brethren Bible teacher named John Darby invented the doctrine of the rapture in the 1830s. It didn't even exist before that. Nobody ever even talked about it. His position was then widely adopted and popularized thanks to the publishing of the Schofield Reference Bible, which picked up on his viewpoints in the early 20th century. And I'm going to include another objection to the rapture under the umbrella of this one. Those who say the early church fathers didn't believe in the rapture. Early church fathers didn't believe in the rapture, so neither should we. Well, there's no question that John Darby's ministry in the 1830s and, and the publishing of the Schofield Reference Bible put the doctrine of the rapture back into mainstream Christianity when it had disappeared for a little while. But so the question was, was it for the first time or did it simply revitalize the church's belief in the rapture? What's amazing to me is that people who hold to this reason for not believing in the rapture it's not because of miscommunications or, or confusions. These are flat-out lies. You know, I don't know if you sometimes research a myth or something like that to see if it's true, and you're amazed how easy it is to find the answer. This is one of those things. You, you can find the answer in the first page of Google results, like less than 60 seconds, and, and people just don't want to do it because they don't want to believe in the rapture. In 270 A.D., St. Victorianus, Bishop of Patau, wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation in which he writes of the church having gone out of the midst of those on the earth. 
In 373 AD, Ephraim the Syrian wrote this, All the saints and elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation which is to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins. And if you'll do the research, you'll find that the list of pastors in church history who believed in the rapture goes on and on and on and even further back. I know I'm boring you, but I'm just putting this as a reference here. We've got the epistle of Barnabas. We've got Irenaeus' famous against heresies. Hippolytus of Rome, Justin Martyr, these are guys in the second or first centuries, to name a few. Now, what's interesting, and I found this as I was researching it, is that the church did move away from interpreting the Bible literally as the church fused with the Roman state, creating the Roman Catholic Church in the fourth and fifth centuries. Now, why do you think people stopped interpreting the Bible literally? It's because, guess what the Roman Catholic Church did? stop people reading their Bibles. The church began moving back to interpreting the Bible literally during and shortly after the Reformation because guess what people started doing again as the result of the Reformation? Started reading their Bibles. Joseph Mead, a 16th century English biblical scholar, wrote about the rapture literally and even used the word rapture in the 16th century. Other guys, names you won't know, but just giving the reference, there's a guy whose first name is Increase. That's a great name. Increase Mather, 17th century. Peter Giroux, 17th century. Philip Doddridge, 18th century. John Gill, 18th century. James McKnight, 18th century. Thomas Scott, 18th century. And Morgan Edwards, 18th century. All wrote commentaries about a pre-tribulation rapture of the church as a separate event from the second coming. So to be frank, this accusation of the rapture being invented in 1830 is demonstrably untrue demonstrably untrue. The idea that the early church fathers did not believe in the rapture, totally not true. However, again, I need to point something out here. Much as is the case with people who say that the word rapture isn't in the Bible, I wouldn't really care if the rapture didn't get mentioned by the early church fathers after the apostles. And I'll tell you why. The early church writings that I'm interested in, that I base my beliefs upon, are found in the Bible. I want to know what Jesus taught. I want to know what Jesus spoke through the apostles and the prophets. Most of church history, let me be honest, most of church history is an embarrassment, especially in the area of theology. There was this golden era. You know how long the golden era was of the church? Maybe a few years following Acts chapter 2. I think they had a couple of good years in there where it was the model of what Jesus really wanted for the church. But it didn't take very long, didn't take very many years for the church to begin having major issues and problems. Have you read the epistles that are written to the churches? Have you read what's going on in Corinth, what some of these churches are doing? They're disasters. And this is happening within a couple of decades of the literal resurrection of Jesus. You read how off track the churches were getting within a few decades of Jesus rising from the dead. It's incredible. Read the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches around 95 AD in the book of Revelation. Churches had issues. So when people say to me, well, Jeff, the early church father Origen didn't believe in the rapture, or the early church father so-and-so didn't believe in the rapture, I don't really care. Origen was pushing non-biblical stuff like infant baptism, and a whole bunch of those guys would have also told me that I should have been praying to Mary. 
I don't really care what they think. Tell me what God's Word says about the rapture, not what men say about it. Stuff like this is literally why we have the Bible. It's literally why we have the Bible, because God didn't want us playing some sort of theological broken telephone across the centuries. He cemented his word in the scriptures so that in 2019, we could go back to the source and get the information directly, and we wouldn't have to rely on what the early church father said. Just like if there's another generation after ours, they should be in the word, not listening to what we say. They should be in the word for themselves. The rapture's in the Bible. It was believed by early church fathers. But even if it wasn't, who cares? And John Darby told the truth when he said he got the doctrine of the rapture by, I know it sounds crazy, but here's what he said, I got it by reading the Bible. And that's where we should get it to. I'm going to wrap up with this. I wanted to make sure that we don't let the study become strictly an academic exercise. I love this stuff. I find it so fascinating. But I also want to make sure we never lose the wonder of what we're talking about. As I mentioned at the beginning, the best part of that passage about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the part where Paul says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's what it's about. It's about Jesus. It's not about wrapping your head around the the academics of end times events. And so I just want to share a few things to try and just stir our hearts before we have the chance to worship and take communion and just thank Jesus for the hope we have in him. You know, Jesus created the entire universe in six days. In six days. He's been preparing a place for you and I for around 2,000 years. What do you think he can come up with in 2,000 years? It's going to be incredible. If you ever want to feel blessed, no matter what's going on in your life, I go to this often when I just, when I want to encourage myself. I want to encourage you to remember that right now the Bible tells us Jesus is doing two things in heaven for you. Right now, for you. He's praying for you is the first thing. He's praying for you. He's praying for you to walk in victory over sin in your daily life. He's praying for you to have strength against the attacks of Satan. He's praying for you that you would be encouraged. And secondly, Jesus, as we read, he's preparing a place for you right now in eternity in heaven where you'll be with him forever. It's not being corporately prepared for us. It's not like, oh, you're church member number 3,732,184. Yeah, here's your room key. It's not like that. He's preparing a place for you individually. And the moment you see it, the moment you walk into this place that he's prepared for you, you will experience, we will feel for the first time what it means to be home. The first time, what it means to be home. I think we have feelings of longing for home, and the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize you've never been home. And this earth is not your home, it's not my home. But when you walk into this place, it's going to be so perfect. You're just going to look at the Lord and you're going to say, how did you know? How did you know? And he'll say, because I, I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know every part of you. I know you better than you know yourself. And so I made this for you. He's praying for you and he's preparing a place for you because he's just that good. And one more quick point on, on keeping the wonder in this study. 
I would just encourage you, if you're not part of a men's group or a women's group, move heaven and earth to be there because one of the things I've realized is, man, if you want to be encouraged by the Lord, the best thing you can do is give him opportunities to encourage you. Here's what I mean by that. Every time you open his word, you give the Lord an opportunity to encourage you through his word. Every time you listen to a sermon or a message, you give him another opportunity. Every time you meet with another believer and talk about the Lord or ask someone to pray for you, you create an opportunity for the Lord to bless you and encourage you. And so when you get yourself into a small group where people are gonna be praying and the word's gonna be open, you create an opportunity for the Lord to minister to you. And that happened to me this week. Uh, I'll give Bill credit because Bill loves being in the spotlight. Uh, Bill, that's, I'm being facetious, he doesn't at all, but Bill shared something at men's group this week that just has been messing me up since Wednesday, since Wednesday when he shared it, um, in a good way. And if you read the Bible, then, then you know what I mean when I say it messes me up in a good way. He shared how he had been reading a, uh, an H.A. Ironside commentary on John's gospel. And, and Ironside is, is awesome, by the way, uh, an old school commentary guy and he had pointed out something that that I had never heard or never considered before and those are my favorite moments when studying the Bible when there's something mind-blowing that you've never heard before I love that we've mentioned many times that that chapters were only added to the Bible in the 13th century verses were only added to the Bible in in the 16th century in the original manuscripts it's just one flowing piece of text but I guess eventually pastors got tired of like waiting 10 minutes for uh, you know their congregation to make their way through the scrolls to try and find where he was so someone was like let's put chapters in there then you can just say go to chapter 14 let's put verses in there and you can say go to verse 9 but as a result of doing this we sometimes create a mental break when we read the Bible between chapters when the author didn't intend us to do that so we get to the end of a chapter and we're like oh end of thought end of topic, when in reality, when it was written, it, it was just meant to keep going straight into the next chapter. And sometimes we can, we can miss that continuity. It sometimes breaks up conversations right in the middle. And that's what happens between chapters 13 and chapter 14 of John's gospel. And when you read them together and you understand what's actually happening, it's extraordinary. Uh, we just read in this study about Jesus' incredible words and promises at the beginning of, of John 14. We just read about that, but, but let me read to you the last three verses of John 13, or the three verses that come right before this. You'll never guess what it is. It says, Simon Peter said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. So Jesus has just told Peter that despite Peter's good intentions, when everything hits the fan, when Jesus is arrested, Peter will He'll not only fail to lay down his life for Jesus, but he'll lack the courage, he'll lack the strength, he'll lack the conviction and integrity to even acknowledge knowing Jesus. And he'll deny him not once, but, but three times. But Jesus doesn't stop speaking. In my Bible, I don't know about yours, the quotation marks don't even end. They don't close at the end of chapter 13 because Jesus just keeps speaking right into chapter 14. And what does Jesus say to Peter next? He says, Peter, let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And the, the grace of Jesus is just, is just more than I can put into words. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, Peter, the one who's going to deny even knowing me three times. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when you do this, when you mess up in a way that, that, that you won't even be able to believe right now that you're going to mess up, when you mess up that bad, and when it hits you, when the weight of it hits you, Peter, I want you to remember something. Let not your heart be troubled. I still love you. I'm still going to prepare a place for you. And not only that, but I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to make sure you get there, Peter. I'll get you to heaven, and you're going to be with me forever. So in that moment, when you've made your worst mistake and you're at the lowest point of your life, feeling less worthy than you've ever felt before, less deserving of my love than you've ever felt before, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is the one who saves us. He's the one who prepares a place for us. He's the one who will come and get us. And Jesus is the one who will keep us through all of our failings between now and then. It's all Jesus. Jesus at the beginning, Jesus at the end, and Jesus everywhere in between. He's our hope, beginning to end. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Father, we thank you so much for the assurance of your word. God, we just thank you for a promise that we can hold on to, that we can build our lives on, that we don't need to worry whether or not we're going to be able to sustain this, Lord. We don't need to worry whether or not we're going to be able to see ourselves through to heaven. You're the one that's going to do that for us. Father, you're the one that's going to keep us in our lowest moment when we're least deserving of your love as though we ever are. But when we feel least deserving, Lord, you're still praying for us. You're still interceding for us. You're still preparing a place for us. You're still looking forward to seeing us, Lord God. You can't wait. And Father, we can't either. So Lord, we just ask that you would help us to live in light of eternity, in light of the truth that we're going to spend eternity with you. All of our hopes and dreams aren't meant to come true here and now. They're meant to be fulfilled in you, in your presence, God. And so, Father, I pray that we wouldn't waste our lives trying to fulfill all our hopes and dreams, but that we would lay down our lives for you to do the things you ask us to do, to love the people you ask us to love, to serve the people you ask us to serve, to do the work that you ask us to do. And Lord, we will have eternity in a place better we, than we could ever imagine, a place prepared for us by you. And Lord, I, I just can't help thinking how much better that place is gonna be than anything, than any life that I could build for myself here and now. And so, Lord, we offer up our lives to you and, and pray that we would live lives that bless you, 
and express the gratitude for you that we should feel, God, and we do. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.